0: Welcome to Art Conversations and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Kim Lee Coe and Cal Honey are Brampton-based artists, designers, and longtime soulmates who initially met through their careers as graphic designers. After closing their graphic design business, eye to eye Design, in 2009, they spent a year traveling North America in a camper van. Upon their return, they focused their life on art and art instructions. Today, both Kim and Cal are established artists with busy art careers. Kim is a multidisciplinary artist, and Cal is a collage and graphics-based artist. Today, we will chat with them about art, life, and what it's like to be an artist couple. Please welcome Kim Lee Ko and Cal Honey to the podcast. And as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you both.
1: Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: First of all, welcome back, Cal, because you were on my podcast previously.
2: Yes, thank you.
0: So it's always fun to get back into things and now to hear what it's like for both of you to work together. So how about we start with where did it begin?
1: (laughs) Well, we met at uh, Key Publishers, a medium-sized magazine publishing company Cal had been hired straight out of school, and I was managing the central art department for the company.
2: And that was late 1990, I think, 1991.
1: No, we met in 89. Right, correct. Yes.
0: And then from there, you actually opened your own business. What year did that start?
1: 1992. I left, by that time, I was working for Toronto Life specifically, and I left... And thought I would just do a bit of freelance work while I maybe made jewelry or something. Recovered from burnout. Yeah, I was burnt out. And uh, Cal was still working at Key Publishers. He worked directly for the VP creative there. And I ended up booking so much work that it was going to earn way more money than Cal was going to earn in the same number of months that the work was going to take up. So he quit his job and joined me.
0: Sounds perfect. <laughs> and so then you did that until 2009.
1: Yeah. Correct. Yes.
2: Well, we had a very long, successful design career, and we collaborated a lot together during that. Yeah. We also, graphic design is can be a good living, but it's also extremely taxing on the adrenals you know, yeah. with all the deadlines and, and juggling jobs and, and so on. So we were absolutely ready for a break. Both my parents had passed away and they had talked about traveling eventually when they retired, they were finally going to travel and they never did. And so we thought, okay, neither Kim or I traveled out of school. We went straight into the workforce and nose to the grindstone. So we said, okay, we're taking our gap year as, as like 40 year olds. So yeah, so we bought a camper van and hit the road.
1: Yeah.
0: And did you have a plan or was it just let's drive and see where we go? (laughs)
2: <laughs> we, being the graphic designers that we are we had a deadline which is good because we would have been like endlessly preparing otherwise we, oh, had, yeah. we had a residency that we had booked in Grand Prairie Alberta that Kim had taken part in a couple of years prior called the Prairie North Creative Residency and so we ended up driving to Grand Prairie at um, a breakneck <laughs> pace enjoying the scenery as it blurred by our <laughs> Our windows and our blurry eyes, we drove there in four days, and it should be driven in a week. In about a week, yeah
1: yeah, and we arrived too late for the welcome barbecue that had wrapped up by the time we got there.
0: <laughs> that, that sounds like the graphic designers were still in you. You had a oh, oh. for sure. So when you travel, where are some of the places? in your adventures did you go, and how do you think that impacted you both as an artist?
1: Well, we had two legs of travel, the warm weather and the winter. In the warm weather, because Grand Prairie, Alberta is about five hours northwest of Edmonton, which is pretty far north, actually. We just had to go due west to arrive at mile zero of the Alaska Highway. And, you know, that fabled highway. So the first thing we did after the residency was go there and then head north. And we went up into northern BC and Yukon Territory. We loved Whitehorse and Dawson Creek, which has the Klondike residency. And there's a wonderful contemporary art gallery there, which I had my very first residency I had applied for was that residency. And so, you know, we had to check that out. The Dempster Highway runs north of that to the Arctic Ocean. So we had to go a little ways on that highway just for the sheer adventure of it
2: yeah it's a very rugged dirt road i mean it's well graded and everything but it our van was only just up to it so we decided we weren't going to be trying to go to the arctic circle or anything, <laughs> no but we drove we drove about 70 or 80 kilometers north to a park called tombstone and it was great it was stunning like,
1: oh wow oh yeah. yeah and then we headed south through the rockies uh we Staying in Jasper and well, I had another residency, you right? Had a
2: residency and at the Tony <laughs> Only Artist Project, is That's that what right? It That's well, right, in Wells, BC, which is this beautiful ex mining town with like colorfully painted houses, very tiny community, but it has it's, its population doubles when they have their <laughs> artist residency. Uh,
1: yeah, it was pretty funny. So that was fun.
0: That's a good way to start your trip, is to go residency to residency. Yeah.
1: I highly recommend it, actually, yeah. When I applied for that second one, I explained to them that I could not attend the residency unless it was funded. And they gave me the inaugural, oh, what's his name? Plaskett. Joseph Plaskett Award to fully fund my my residency there, which was... Really, you know what a great affirmation that was. And yeah.
0: then from there, where did you head?
2: We then sort of wended our way back to Toronto because we were taking Kim's father on the uh, Polar Bear Express, which goes up to uh, James Bay, and Cochrane, and yeah, and something he always wanted to do. And we said, well, it's our year off for traveling, so we're going to do it. So we did that, and then we stayed the fall which wasn't the intent to teach, because uh, my mentor, Peter Kalisnik, who is one of Canada's, if not the foremost minimalist in Canada, who I had taken classes with at Halliburton School of the Arts and and a few other places, Koffler. Koffler Center for the Arts, he had got cancer. And I said, would you like me to take over your courses while you get your treatment and recover? And he said, yes. So We split them, actually, because
1: I took his figure course and you took his painting painting
2: studio. Yeah. Yeah. So we hadn't intended to do that, but circumstances changed. So unfortunately, he passed away. It was a very aggressive cancer. And so we lost him that fall. And so we had a shortened leg that we started in February of the next year. And
1: we also had a deadline for starting that, which was I said to Cal, "We're, we're not going to still be at home on our anniversary which is in february so we left that night at nine o'clock in a snowstorm <laughs>
2: and, and we we fought our way south there was it was a very bad winter we kept saying we'll just head south until we're out of snow but and that ended up being like mississippi oh
1: my <laughs> texas we thought we'd take a little break in texas right? Te- you don't go further south than Texas, right? So we found a state park and we, we splurged on paying for electricity for the campsite, woke up to a power outage and everything covered in snow. Everybody's telling us, we've never had a snowstorm like this. I mean, we we were dogged by blizzards the entire way from Brampton to Texas. From there, We uh, headed northwest and into New Mexico, and our favorite part of the U.S. is the American Southwest and, truth be told, the West Coast, California and so on. And those were some, oh, absolutely stunning places and sites and just experiences of different light and different landscapes and, you know, snowfall on blooming cacti. We arrived at Joshua Tree National Park just when everything started to bloom, and it's all Joshua trees and cactus there, but it was gorgeous, and then it snowed, and it was this incredible
2: juxtaposition. Oh. Okay. It's not what you think of as a Canadian to see snow on cactus, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and... As far as how it affected us as artists, that's an interesting question. I feel kind of like for me, it was a transition and a reset. I definitely feel we saw beautiful things. We had beautiful experiences. We had some tough experience, definitely. Yeah, we went through some stuff. (laughs) Because uh, I'm not a happy camper when I can't, quite literally, when I can't get out and move around. And we, in the leg heading south, we were just basically driving all day through snow and then parking in a Walmart parking lot and staying in our van and then getting up and driving again. And it was driving me crazy. And I darn near drove Kim crazy as well. It had very highs and very lows. But I think really it sort of played out as artist's later
1: i would say from my perspective observing you cal was severely burnt out and mm-hmm. this traveling really caused a major shift inside him it wasn't easy but it was a major shift that allowed him to make the major shift in our life moving from design to visual artists and um you know that requires mentally and emotionally quite a big shift and I should say you know he especially and I do to some extent a little design still but you know we'll never stop being designers in one sense but it it was a big shift in terms of the kind of life we were going to be making as artists versus designers so this was a necessary precursor for me it opened I, I find that going to the mountains And deserts and oceans opens up my mind in a way that allows it a lot more freedom, a lot more sort of uh,
2: expansive.
1: Yes, it's literally expansive. Inhabiting big, wide open spaces allows me to create big, wide open spaces in my imagination. And yeah, I miss it. COVID hasn't been good for that.
0: I would love to go anywhere. (laughs) Anywhere. I have a couple of questions coming out of that. When you set off, you talked about you were both feeling burnt out, but did you know you were going to make that transition? Had you sort of decided that before you left or did this sort of evolve as you were traveling?
2: I I would say, and correct me if you think it was different, that we were pretty much thinking about 90% that we would do this and then come back to a very different life of art and art instruction. But we also were open to the fact that, you know, maybe that won't be what we do. So we told our clients that we were going away for a year. In in the back of our minds, we were thinking, and we might not be back. Yeah,
1: but we're (laughs) Uh, taking a year off for sure. That we knew for sure. And I highly recommend if you're going to make a big change in your life or you're contemplating a big change in your life, rehearsing it. And that's essentially what we were doing. So we had the opportunity to just restart our business after a year. And I kept a blog, right, that people, you know, people, I had a mailing list of people who wanted to follow the blog, I shared thoughts and photos and so on. And uh, there were clients among those people who were following it. And it was really, it was kind of a fun engagement device. But it also meant we maintained relationships even while we were away. So,
0: Which is important, of course. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you also mentioned that in the fall, you had done some teaching at Halliburton. Was that sort of your first time going into teaching the arts or had you dabbled with teaching here and there prior to that?
2: So, and it was actually at yeah. Coffler that we both yeah. taught that, but I had taught very few courses prior to that for Halliburton School of the Arts at OCAD and at Station Gallery in Whitby. Also both because of Peter. Yeah, Peter was a great mentor. And he, I remember, he called me up and he would do this every so often. He'd like call me up at like, he'd be up since like six in the morning, he'd call me up at 7.30 and he'd say, hey, turkey, get out of bed. <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> but he said whatever along that line. He said, hey, do you want to teach? And I remember saying yes to him. And if you, I was like, what are you saying? You are nuts! Like you can't teach it on that. Yeah. Why is
1: my mouth why saying is my the word, word? yes?
2: <laughs> so, so he found opportunities for me, opened doors for me, introduced me. Yeah, that was beautiful.
0: Yeah, so, he obviously saw something there, Cal, to keep pushing you in that direction.
2: You know, he had a design career as well. And he I think he understood the pressures of working on deadline and working to briefs and for clients and so on, and not being able to get to your own work, you know, your and artwork for him, that was his ticket to you know, to do some teaching and be able to advance his own work. And I think he saw the possibility for me as well, and was really lovely that he opened those doors. I'm forever grateful. We're
1: both of us are so grateful because it's You know, as much as it's obviously given Cal a way to, and me, to earn a living, but I was, I'd already had some experience teaching other things. It's also given Cal so many other gifts besides earning, you know, in terms of developing other aspects of himself. He's become more fully himself, which is a beautiful thing to behold, I have to say.
2: I was not a natural teacher at first, but I learned how to use a Mac from Kim. And she taught countless people at publishers how to use Macs. Um, and
1: outside of key publishers, yeah, absolutely. Too. Yeah. So she she had
2: a long history
1: of informal. And
0: so I just want to go back to your journey for a minute because yeah. you wrap up this year, you get home, and then you're at that. <laughs> <laughs> now what?
1: And the chalk of how much money we've burned through. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What did the now what look like, or how did you make your next move and decide which path to go down?
1: We
2: told a few of our teaching gigs that we would be back in time to start the spring term, which I think was in late April April or mid-April, I forget exactly what. But we'd lined up some teaching gigs to come back to, and that's what we did.
1: I think we put word out, basically. You know, we told our friends who were teachers that we were looking at teaching, and I think we got some recommendations. We'd both been part of the Nielsen Park Creative Center community for several years, and I'm not sure if Visual Arts Mississauga came into it as early as that, or if that came in like a year or two later. I I
2: actually think I started there before anything, actually. Okay.
1: I didn't, but no, you no, did. Yeah, I did yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: It, it grew very organically and yeah. quite well, I
1: would yeah, say. Yeah, it was quite gratifying, actually, the response to our courses. I think we were offering things a little differently. Like my figure drawing class wasn't a normal figure drawing class. And, you know, we taught experimental drawing and Cal taught experimental watercolor. And yeah, we just had a different, we had different takes on things and people were curious, I think.
0: Once you started teaching, you were also starting to work on your own art. So was there things that you each knew you wanted to do? Or did you just start experimenting and playing?
2: Oh, I'll uh, speak to that first. And then Kim can come in on hers. I had a project, I, I needed a project for the residency that we were starting in Grand Prairie. So I hatched an idea. At that point, I was Quite interested in competitive cycling. I did that a little bit at a short, very amateur career when I was younger and so had that interest. And so I had this idea to make a piece about the Tour de France that incorporated a small panel for every rider in the Tour de France and arranged them on the wall from start to finish in order of finishing, paint them in team colors, et cetera. And so I thought, well, that's a good meaty project to get a good start on at the residency. And so that's what I did. I First thing I said was, okay, so where can I find plywood? And they sent me to the local lumber yard and they had a shop there that I could cut it up. That was what I started. And then that was basically for the next two and a half years, that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> because it took a long time. And it was great because I knew what I was doing. I was working on X team or X rider. And so, yeah.
1: What he hasn't conveyed here is the sheer number. How many riders were there, Cal? Yeah, 189. So one panel for every one of those. And on each panel, you had the team colors with stripes that you masked off with numbers that you stenciled and hand cut each stencil for each panel and and laid all that out on the computer first. And then each one had some stats and And, uh, flag of the nation of origin for the rider. Now I don't know if you've looked at some of the flags of the world lately, but some of them are extremely intricate and they how big were the flags? An inch?
2: They were like two inches wide, so or tall. Two inches yeah. tall and sometimes a little wider, right? So ornate flags like Spain, which has a coat of arms in the center of it, is mental. Yeah. Um,
1: and the American flag with all the little stars. He cut all those little tiny stars. I did you know, it's gotta be seen to be believed, honestly. But I
2: do like finicky. And you were working on boxed-in drawings, weren't you? Oh, that's
1: right. That's what I was doing during the residencies. (laughs) It's a good thing he remembers. (laughs) That's part of the teamwork. Yeah. So it was really important work for me, actually. I did a whole series of mostly drawings of single human figures drawn completely from imagination in a very improvisational way in confined spaces. Mostly you didn't see the edges, they were just implied by the sometimes very awkward positions the figures were in. And most of them were just charcoal on white paper and eraser. And it was, I really, really pushed myself on it and had a number of breakthroughs on the work. And in 2010, I had a solo show of just that work. Mm -hmm. And it was very gratifying to see it all hanging together, looking very unified, because I had actually taken a whole bunch of different approaches in it. And, you know, there were ways in which it looked like a group show, but it was all really unified by the theme. So that was very instructive. And and the framing. And
2: framing, yeah. That's a good thing about being a designer is you realize, okay, this work could be very disparate but I'll present it in a very unified way. way. Exactly. Um, And lots of people, everyone commented on how consistent and how like pulled together it felt.
1: And that was a really essential foundational body of work for me because it was from that, that I realized it was exploring the idea of barriers that we all experience, whether internally generated or externally imposed And I realized that this was an idea that I could take to kind of an unlimited number of places in terms of medium and format and conceptual approaches and so on. So that's what led me to apply for what was then known as the Burlington Arts Center, but is now the Art Gallery of Burlington to apply for a mentorship, even though it was the new generation mentorship program. And I, at age 40 or whatever, was hardly new generation.
2: So growing out of that, this is something that we should mention is I am a very structured and system kind of thinker.
1: And that piece that I just
2: described called general classification, where there is a system for how it's how it's made and how it's laid out. And Kim is very, very free form and she resents structures. So the the boxed <laughs> in is is about feeling uncomfortable with societal or any kind of imposed system. And we but we you both, love
1: your boxes. I love my boxes and she <laughs> hates her boxes.
2: But I, I think in that is the the, secret nub, sauce. the nub of why we have collaborated really well as designers and while we haven't done a very much collaboration as artists i think we can look at each other's work from very different perspectives and we both really respect what the other person brings and we'd love to collaborate in the future yeah um i've read about a lot of creative couples or creative partnerships of any kind that have aspects of both of those things and and you need both right for mm-hmm. things to
1: to really work yeah yeah
0: so i guess you bring me to my next question about how you each individually work? And what does space look like? How do you navigate being in a place where you're both creating and... With
1: shovels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we,
2: um, we are so close in so many ways and we're so different in, in so many ways. I'm a morning person and she's a night owl. And that's actually, I think, a key aspect because I think we both find we need to have the other one at a distance to be able to sort of hear our thoughts. Right. It's like when the other one's too close by, it's like there's a frequency broadcasting. And that's great if you're in a conversation about something. And and we do that all the time. Like, bring, what do you think of this? I'm yeah. having trouble with this part. What are your thoughts? And Kim always has a million ideas. And I always have several system ideas for like, you need this to be more organized, <laughs> <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think we've sort of used that natural time shift as a way of giving each other space because Mm -hmm. we live, you know, it's not a tiny apartment, but it's a one floor bungalow. and It's it's not a big bungalow. And it's chock-a-block with Kim has never seen anything in the world that she doesn't think she could include in an art piece at some point. So we have a collection (laughs) of those. (laughs) That's a
0: collection of one day I will use it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, I could see so much potential for meaning and yeah, visual properties. Whereas Cal would ideally live in basically a a German designed monk cell. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and and I I like things to again fit into boxes. I like there to be not too many options because I get overwhelmed by options. Yeah. Whereas Kim loves to have options. She loves to explore options. She thinks big, like she will make installation work out of our living room or our <laughs> a bedroom, right? And and in the gallery, it looks amazing. In our house, it's overwhelming, right? Oh,
1: like my heart sculpture from 2019, which is made out of chicken wire. And it's, so it's an anatomical heart that's about, I don't know, five feet high or something. And I'm making this on our living room rug. And our living room rug is, you know, maybe seven feet long. So that gives me a foot on each end. And <laughs> it's a very around.
2: active pattern. And yeah. you got this fine mesh on top of it. And I'm saying, how can you even tell what you're looking at? <laughs> he says, well, it's either here or nowhere. Right? <laughs> yeah,
1: <So." laughs> exactly. What are um, my options, you know?
2: So I, I think, you know, obviously there are gonna be any relationship, there are going to be frictions about I need that space or can you move it over or whatever. But at heart, I think we both really love and respect each other's work. And so yeah. we want to do what makes it happen, right?
1: And you know, that tension the tension of our differences. Being the magic, when we were designers and art directors and had our own design firm after that, we were fantastic collaborators. You know we really we would get together and work on stuff together and be better and more productive and uh, more creative as a result of our collaboration. It was really it was such a good thing. So it,
2: so when you're on a
1: deadline
2: as a designer, you have next often next to no time to come up with something that will really fit the bill. And so being able to bring two brains to focus on that, and especially when they complement each other which we learned we really did and respect each other we Mm -hmm. could arrive at a much better solution much faster yeah and we got to the point where before we left key publishers people would come to us and say you know i want you guys to both work on it as a team as a team and then it also meant that once we were out on our own people gravitated to us for that reason
1: yeah that's why i mean honestly we got so much work that's why we call their business eye-to-eye, actually.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because we see eye-to-eye and we see eye-to-eye with the clients. So. Well, yeah.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You've hit on a couple of really important things, like having that support and being able to see the different perspectives. I mean, that just opens up a lot in terms of ideas and possibility. And I love hearing about the differences. Compliment <laughs> 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 one, <laughs> one <laughs> another. So- so it totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What would you say, if you were giving some advice to young artists starting out who are trying to either be designers or artists or just even following their dreams without you know, the safety net of a prescribed career, what advice
1: would
2: you give them? Make lots of work.
1: Yeah. And make some of the work just for yourself. One of the things that leads to burnout in the design profession is the client's Demands are like a fire hose sucking the creativity out of you without putting much back, if anything. And you have to put it back. And how you put it back is anything that nourishes you, anything at all. Like I'm taking singing lessons. So there you go, right? Someone else, it might be uh, collecting frogs and making things that are just for you, that are your... um, playgrounds you know whether you're doing it as a designer in which case it's a design playground Mm -hmm. or maybe you take on a a pro bono project for a charity or something so that you can make it you know with creative freedom so you can make that the playground or you just make it purely for yourself and put it on a on a blog you know and, and share it with people i think that's really important um artists young artists starting out one of the things I really want to emphasize is there are at least 10,000 different paths you can take to being an artist. Only some of those paths, the vast minority of those paths are you sell at a gallery. Mm -hmm. You know, so many artists are either teachers of some kind or they are working in some other field whether it's a warehouse or an accountancy firm you know it honestly it really doesn't matter what it is but you you finance your art the way you need to and don't judge yourself for doing that i've had to give some pep talks about that you have a right to be happy and you have a right to not be poor so you know, and it's in like everything in life, it's a balancing act, and the balance is rarely perfect, but you just you just do the best you can and make the best work you can. Yeah, you know, ultimately.
2: I would say um, another thing that I still have challenges with, but I'm always happy when I do it, and I think it's really important is to pay yourself first. In other words, if making your work, makes you happy, and you have all these other obligations, start with the stuff that makes you happy. Yeah, And absolutely. then move on, that's bolstered when you feel, okay, well I've spent even like 15 minutes this morning before I dive into all my other obligations on what fuels me. It makes the rest of the day feel so much better when you do it, trying to like, well, I'll get this, my obligations out of the way first and then I'll, then I'll pay myself and then you're tired and you're exhausted and you've been tired and exhausted and frustrated all day because you haven't,
1: And artists who aren't making art, honestly, creatives who aren't creating of any kind, they are super unhappy souls and all kinds of nasty stuff can result from it. You know, you turn inwards and develop neurotic behaviors. I wanted to bring up the story of our friend Teresa Casey, who's like one of Canada's top interior designers. So she's got this really busy practice, busy business, In interior design, and she's an artist as well. And you know, it's tough balancing it. So she did a practice every morning. Mm -hmm. I think it was no more than a half hour every morning. Five minutes. And she had a stack of Mylar polyester film, all the same size. And she just take one of those sheets every morning, and she had charcoal, and she just did something non-objective drawing. And she ended up having a gorgeous show of Mm -hmm. this work that was just a a daily morning practice. And I were lucky enough to own one of them. She said, I'm not
2: allowed to leave the house to go to work until I've done my drawing. And so sometimes it was literally just a few minutes because she had to get out the door to that appointment. Yeah. But it's... And I know, Lisa, you're a. You take on the. These
1: hundred day projects projects and all all that. That's
2: that's a a perfect example of it, right?
0: It's getting that balance. Like, you need to create. I completely understand that.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know people who are artists who have not made art for decades and they are not happy people. They are not balanced people.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine not creating. Yeah got to yeah. do something
1: so you got to do something exactly like i don't care if you know it can be sewing things it can be whatever right but you got to do something so yeah so do it whatever make, it is makers must make
2: yeah that's
0: true that's a great quote you have to steal it <laughs> <laughs> put it on every surface that i can <laughs> um, The last little while, things have changed drastically, especially uh, your teaching careers because of COVID. So many of us have been impacted by shutdowns and changes of schedules. How has it impacted your teaching career, but also how has it impacted you as creatives?
1: Ah,
2: That's an interesting question. You know, I think we both felt, and I think a lot of artists felt that, oh, suddenly we've got a bunch of free time, but a lot of people struggled. A lot of artists we know, including us, struggled to make sort of really new work that sort of felt important in those circumstances.
1: There are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one is the mental and emotional bandwidth that was being occupied by the anxiety of the situation and the confinement of the situation. That's one thing. Also, we were needing to pivot our business because as you say, the teaching was impacted. All of the in-person classes were canceled, obviously. And Cal was also, you know, he was teaching at, you know, s- seniors residences for one organization. Well, that was the last place in the world that was allowing strangers in, right? Like, So we switched to teaching online, which fortunately I had started the previous year. Because I teach some digital courses, and I was testing the idea. It turned out, um, so I was on Zoom the year before teaching, before everybody rushed onto it. Thank heavens. Thank goodness, because, you know, it meant that we could hit the ground running.
2: Kim gave me a quick crash course in Zoom and we were teaching within two weeks.
1: Yeah, I mean, people were desperate for courses, right? Because everything had been canceled. People are at home alone and anxious and depressed and whatever. So first thing we did was we both started our own YouTube live streams, creative live streams. Cal had Virtual Collage Jam, which he started several days after I started Virtual Studio Party. But they're free events. Free and, and YouTube live streams, so that it was like the lowest barrier to entry, right? Just about anybody can find their way to YouTube. So we started with those events.
2: It really gave us an opportunity to give back to our community or to help whom our we were community. worried about. Yeah, we were just really concerned that everyone was at home scared and with nothing to do and people were so grateful so kind and thankful
1: you wouldn't believe the emails we got it was was just so
2: affirming yeah you know i think we both struggled with burnout from teaching and especially when we've been driving hither and thither and yon to teach which is what we were doing pre-covid yeah but that
1: was that was that was a vocation
2: that was a real calling and it really felt sacred sacred yeah honestly
1: you know like i don't use that word lightly and i don't use it as a religious person but it was definitely kind of sacred and in fact we're resuming our live streams at the end of september you've been on hiatus this summer because it's just something we feel called to do and there's a community around it now and we now co-host for each other so it is now we do collaborate in that way so cal has his collage jam and he decides what the theme is and he's the one on camera and doing the demonstration but it's Kim and Cal FM, you know. um chatting back and forth, and I tell him what's going on in the text-based chat, and vice versa. When yeah, it's, when, when it's, it's studio virtual party. studio party. So, do
2: you feel that you've now coming back
1: to creating work? Kim? Absolutely. I, you know, spurred on by, by a deadline, by a deadline, because <laughs> I have a show scheduled, a solo exhibition at Redhead Gallery scheduled for march 16th to april 2nd and i was you know a lot has gone on this year for both of us in the family including my dad dying and so i would normally have started work on this show in january um i started looking at it barely at late july i guess so now i feel really fertile but you know it's been 18 months or or so right so mm-hmm. it took that long, but we didn't really address the teaching proper part of that very much. So we got on Zoom and we started offering things and our courses were oversubscribed. So we ended up offering two classes of the same topic, each of us, because it was, the demand was just so great because we were able to turn on a dime, whereas institutions needed much more time.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, I think you you had the foundation, like you mentioned, so that makes a huge difference.
1: Yeah, it yeah. did. You yeah. know, even had a good mic already. <laughs> and yeah, and the
2: difference between say a few weeks into COVID and three months in by that by the time it was three months in, a bunch of institutions
1: had started to yeah get, get and, and people were going. sort of
2: used to the idea that oh, they can go to like a figure drawing session broadcast from the UK or from yeah. somewhere. Yeah. But at first it was, it was, it like was just like teaching people app. how to use zoom yes. and telling them that they can, they can do this, you know, and yeah. it's not that they're going to rob easy. their
1: bank accounts just because they've been in a zoom session it's really
2: opened up the world in that way. One of the things I'm abidingly concerned about is climate change. And my carbon footprint has gone down immensely because I was driving five or six days a week to
1: five or six
2: different gigs. And now I drive to the grocery store and pretty much, you know, a few other things. I I really hope that, um, and I think it's going to be the case that coming out of the pandemic that a lot more people are a lot more open to the idea of staying home for some courses for some of their education well for...
1: we've had people tell Absolutely. us that they hope we're still going to offer online courses i mean one of the things that happened for example is we got some students from the united states or from the west coast in our classes because we're online and you know prior to the the pandemic far fewer people would have been willing to try taking online courses the yeah, pandemic absolutely. made it a necessity you know some people wouldn't try for the first 6 months hoping that things would return to normal eventually even those people realized no it's not going to be that fast and they got on board you know and so we really focused on trying to figure out how to make on online classes good experiences
0: Well, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyways. So do you imagine seeing this as a hybrid for you then going forward where you teach some in person and some online?
2: Absolutely. I can't say for sure yet, but my feeling is that my baseline will be teaching online and special occasions like, oh, I'm going to do a workshop or I'm going to do this particular course in person when it suits it and it becomes more of a special thing
1: yeah and i'm particularly interested in venues that create unique opportunities you know whatever that is some of them it's just you know it's a unique venue and it's wonderful and inspiring to be there and others there will be maybe facilities or location that make it kind of a unique opportunity and then it's very compelling to make it in person in that case you know
0: i think it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this in the next couple of years i don't think we're quite out of the thick of it yet
1: yeah seriously no. as the virus mutates you know what our life is going to look like in two years like one
0: of the things i always ask as i start to wrap up with my guests is a book that they recommend to artists and creatives to read so i'm going to Pose two questions to you for this number one is there one collectively that you would both agree uh-huh. on?
1: oh you know when you limit us to one book lisa it's like torture <laughs> um you know well let me start by saying something we both read and actually took a workshop in very early long before we Uh, became visual artists for real was The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. You know, that Mm -hmm. is a seminal book for people who are drawn to creative slash artistic pursuits, but are stuck. So, you know, I'm sure a thousand people will tell you about that one. And some people, of course, hate the book. So, you know, that's just normal, right?
0: I love the book and I actually got to meet her and get her autograph. Oh,
1: wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, we really needed it. This was back in the 90s uh, that we did this. We were living in the beach at the time, thriving graphic design business. But we knew we needed um, some artistic. Our souls
2: were barren. Yeah. Our our wells were dry. We were
1: starving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was really important. And that was a collective thing. So, yeah.
2: And i'm gonna I'm gonna suggest another one and it's one we've been listening to together and I think it just kind of ties into what we've been mm. talking about today and it's uh, Seth Godin's the practice
1: yes which we is haven't even finished
2: it and we've been listening but we've been listening to it together
1: yeah.
2: and the reason I mentioned that one it, well he's
1: he's incredible, he is incredible as a thinker
2: as a thinker and it's about what it, we've been talking about exactly yeah which is the idea of having a regular practice to get the work that you need to get done for your soul and for your spirit and also for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> get it out into the world. Yeah.
1: And, and, and Shipping the work is what matters as far as he's concerned. Yeah, he's, like
2: He said it can be summed up by here, I made this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: If you could see my bookshelf, those two books are side by side. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> So individually, there's so many great books and our shelf is groaning with wonderful books, but I'm actually going to veer away from, you know, obviously art targeted books. I like writers who create for me those wide open spaces I talked about uh, experiencing geographically on our travels and who really who the quality of their thinking raises my game because you know we're nothing without our ideas and um, Rebecca Solnit who's an American historian, I think is her, um, she has a PhD, and she's written some incredible books. Uh, two of my favorites, and I haven't read all, everything yet, but two of my favorites. One is about walking, the history of walking, the, the practice of walking. It's not nearly as linear and whatever is that description sounded it's mm-hmm. full of quotations and anecdotes and tying things together she's a magnificent writer and it, that ties into Julia Cameron who later on added walking as a practice that creatives need to to do regularly if they're mm-hmm. able to but she, solnit also wrote a book on edward mybridge who changed everything in the 19th century when he photographed motion using multiple cameras and uh, inspired the futurists, for example... And by shooting the motion of people and animals and things in quick successive shots, completely changed our understanding and structured our understanding about motion. And so, what we see in animation and in paintings and drawings is informed by the work Edward Mybridge did as a very scientific kind of photographer. Mm-hmm.
0: I haven't read anything by her, but now I'm, I'm, my curiosity has peaked. So.
1: Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah.
0: And Cal, did you want to add one final book?
1: Um, I will add
2: a book I read last year called The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer. Oh, and such a good book. Um, I have my whole career, especially my art career, I have struggled with With feeling like I should, it's safe to share my work, safe safe to put it out there into the world. Not even safe, but like, oh, this isn't good enough yet, or it's not ready yet. And that book is a manifesto for the obligation of an artist to share their work and to... Ask for support. Ask for support, to get support. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Build support, build community. Community, yeah. Yeah. it, you said something there that I have to, I can't let it go, Lisa. I have to. He said, it's not ready yet. So you were asking about advice for artists and designers, any kind of creative. When you are 100% ready for something, it's already too late. Mm-hmm. You need to do stuff before you're ready. And in fact, this is something that we have
2: been learning as as recovering perfectionists. Yeah actually from the example of a lot of younger people who are just gamely like diving in putting something out there that is not so great and then the next thing they put out is a little bit better and the next thing they put out a little bit better we struggled
1: well because the design profession typically uh, attracts and and supports perfectionists. But Ted Godin in the practice says, you know, show me your bad writing. Don't tell me you've got writer's block. Writer's block is fear of bad writing. Show me your bad writing. Write more of it. And eventually you'll get to the good writing. Yeah.
0: I I understand that perfectionism. Yeah. I have to check that at the door a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it it holds a lot of people back, and mm-hmm. you know, in this time, this is an age of anxiety, and perfectionism is a whole anxious laden trap.
0: <laughs> so it's hard to escape that idea of the perfect life, the perfect. Oh
1: my God, yes. So
0: right. So
1: show show the mess. Like my, I mean, honestly, my art is about showing mm-hmm. showing the How mess. You know.
2: Messy. uh, Life, emotions. Yeah. um, Relationships. Yeah.
0: Yeah, There's a quote by Robin Sharma and I hope I get it even close. But he says, uh, life is hard in the beginning, messy in the middle and perfect in the end. I have that on my studio wall because I need to remind myself sometimes that it's okay if things are not working.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it needs to be messy. If it's not messy, then there's not enough going on.
0: Although sometimes I have to clean up to find the stuff that I need to make the mess. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But that's a cycle, right?
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Like the leaves
1: fall, they decompose, new leaves grow.
0: That's true. That's true. That's a good analogy.
1: Yeah. Thank you
0: so much. I really appreciate both of you spending the time with me this afternoon. And this has been wonderful.
1: It's been such a pleasure, Lisa, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a delight chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you. Take care.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.